Well, next week we're going to start a new series here at Southwood. It's going to last three sermons long. It's called Cover to Cover, and I'm going to walk you through the whole Bible. So from Genesis to Revelation, we'll cover it in three weeks. I want to get you ready for that this week by doing something a little bit different. We're going to focus on just Genesis chapter 1, just the beginning of the story, and we're going to go very deep into this chapter. Now, I'll warn you, if you're visiting our church, this morning is not going to be typical. We usually worship for a lot longer. This is not going to feel like a sermon. It's going to feel more like a college class. There's no way around that. Living here in a college town, one of the most frequent questions I'm asked is how do I reconcile Genesis 1 with science, with all that I'm learning in my classes? I cannot adequately answer that question in a 20-minute sermon. I I need to go deep. And so today we're going to go into great detail in Genesis 1. I'm going to walk you through the text. We're going to talk about the big ideas in their context. We're going to talk about all the different views Christians hold to reconcile this with science. A lot of stuff here. I'm going to move fast. Don't worry about absorbing it all. I will post all of my notes this afternoon on Facebook. And then on Tuesday, the sermon and notes in PowerPoint will post on our website. You'll probably have to go back through the notes a few times to absorb it and really understand all that we're covering. Okay, so that's where we're going. This is a complicated chapter, and it's made more difficult by the fact that most of us miss the point when we read Genesis 1. This chapter reminds me of the first and only time I've ever taken my son Luke to an Aggie football game. It was not an enjoyable time. It was not fun at all because Luke was too young to get it. The whole idea of going to an Aggie football game did not make sense to him yet. There was only one thing that Luke wanted to do in Kyle Field. Can you guess what it is? He wanted to ride that escalator over and over again. We went up, we went down, we went up, we went down. People were like, what's going on? Well, that's all my boy wants to do. I finally coaxed him into the stadium where we could see the field, but it was far away. And if you're a little kid, football is really confusing. And as soon as the Aggies scored and that cannon was fired, he was done. Back to the escalator. Luke didn't get it. He didn't appreciate what an Aggie football game was all about. We make the same mistake when we read Genesis 1. We don't get it. We don't appreciate what this chapter is really about. We get distracted by minor things like riding the escalator and miss the big idea. And so what are the minor things in Genesis 1 that tend to distract us? Well, it's the questions how and when. How did God make the world and when did he make it? How do I fit all this into the science I'm learning and my classes? What do I do with that? Those are the minor questions that preoccupy us and distract us from the big idea. And so one of the most important things I want you to grasp this morning as we walk through Genesis 1 is that it is not primarily about how or when the world was made. That's not the question that Genesis 1 was designed to answer because those aren't the questions the ancient Israelites were asking. They they did not care about those questions. If you're going to understand Genesis 1, you have to put yourself back into their shoes. You have to read this chapter through the eyes of an Israelite living in the wilderness 
3,500 years ago when this chapter was written and spoken by Moses. And so let's think for a moment about what your life would be like if you were an ancient Israelite in the wilderness hearing this story for the first time 3,500 years ago. Well, first of all, you don't really know a lick about science. That's not really where you're living. That's not the age of the human race that we're in at that time. So you're not asking scientific questions. You don't know about science. What you know is that life is hard, brief, painful, and scary. You see, you were born and lived your entire life until like a few days ago, a slave in Egypt. It was a cruel place to live. You were just just slave labor. Nothing was valuable about you to that society. Life was hard. You grew up hearing stories about the Egyptian gods and how they made the world. And those stories were terrifying. The Egyptian gods, they were horrible. They were cruel. They were limited. They were immoral. They were fighting one another. And they cared nothing about the human race. All you are is slave labor to the Egyptian gods. So you grow up hearing that that's life. That's reality. And then here comes Moses with this new declaration of God. This new story about this amazing God. And wow, this God of Moses, he did some big stuff back in Egypt. Ten plagues. Divided the Red Sea. Now he's led you out. But now what you want to know is now that we're in the wilderness, will this God of Moses take care of me? And the two million other Israelites who are in a land where there's no water, there's no food. It's one of the most inhospitable places on the planet. Can we trust this God to take care of us? Will he watch over us? And what about when enemies are coming after us? Can he defeat those enemies? And when we get to the promised land, can he defeat the gods of the Canaanites and give us the land he's promised? And, and worst of all, when, when we fail in the midst of this time in the wilderness, will this God of Moses turn his back on us like the gods of Egypt would? What you want to know if you're an ancient Israelite is not the mechanics of creation. You want to know, does this God of Moses have my back? When it is 110 degrees Fahrenheit and there is no food and there are enemies coming after us, will this God take care of me? That's the question you are asking. That's what you need to know. And so with that idea in mind, I want us to read Genesis 1, imagining we're hearing it as an Israelite in the wilderness 3,500 years ago, desperate to know if we can trust this God. I want you to hear it kind of for the first time, like they would have. Now, there were no verses when it was originally written. It is one story. So to hear it as they would have, we have to read the whole story. So we're going to read all of Genesis 1. It was one thing. Okay, so let's read Genesis 1 together. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light and there was light. God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning one day. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. And it was so. God called the expanse heaven and there was evening and there was morning a second day. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. 
God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning a third day. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. Then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning. A fifth day. Then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man. In our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky and to everything that moves on the earth, which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. As the ancient Israelites heard that story for the first time, there are a few things that they would know are true that we might miss. So a few things that that their understanding as they hear this story the first time. First of all, they know this isn't a myth. They know this is true. Why? Because they literally watched Moses with their own eyes walk up Mount Sinai and dwell with God for 40 days in his Shekinah glory at the top of the mountain. They saw Moses with God. So they know this is God speaking. So they never would have assumed that this is a myth. They know it's not made up. They know that this is God speaking to Moses. So they know it's not a myth. Second, they would know that this is apologetics. 
In other words, they would know that what Moses is doing here is he is proving that their God is better than the Egyptians' gods. How do they know that? Because as they read this, they would actually be hearing a lot of the same imagery and metaphors that were common in Egyptian creation myths. So they'd been hearing Egyptian creation myths their whole lives. And and Moses takes a lot of that language and imagery and phraseology and he uses it here. So what they're hearing is that Moses is using the Egyptians' words, but he's ascribing them to a better God. I'll give you an example. In day number two, the Egyptians had exactly the same description of the waters below, the waters above, and the, the sky, really is what that is, the sky in between. Except in the Egyptian creation myths, each of those are gods. There's the god of the water below, the god of the water above, and the sky god who inserts himself between the two of them so that they can't have sex anymore. That's actually what creation is about in that Egyptian creation myth. So Moses uses that same imagery and says, not at all. They're not gods. They're created by the speech of the one great God. So to the Israelites listening to Moses speak, what they're hearing is a fight. This isn't scientific data. This is a fight between the one true God and the gods of Egypt. Conrad Heyer, a scholar who studied this in great detail, he says each day of creation dismisses an additional cluster of deities from Egypt. It's exactly right. Each day of creation is meant to smack down another group of Egyptian gods. So that's what they're hearing, a debate. They're hearing that their god is better. Third thing that would be obvious to them as they hear this for the first time, this is poetry. This is poetry. This isn't a textbook. This is poetry. If I say to you, roses are red, violets are blue, sugar is sweet, and so are you. How do you know that's a poem? Because it has the defining marks of English poetry. It has rhythm and it has rhyme. Well, that's how English poetry works. That's not how Hebrew poetry works. Hebrews didn't use rhythm and rhyme. They used repetition. So if you read the Psalms, for example, not rhythm and rhyme, what you see is repetition. They repeated key words, key phrases, and key structures to make poetry. Guess what you see a lot of in Genesis 1? Repetition. Over and over again, there's repetition of structures, there's repetition of key words and phrases. God said, God said, God said, God said, evening and morning, evening and morning, evening and morning. It's good, it's good, it's good. You see this repetition over and over again that is clearly poetry. So when Timothy Keller studied this book, what he came to the conclusion of is that to the original audience, this would have actually been a song, not a history. It's a song. That's what it's meant to be. It's a poem. So to the ancient Israelites, Genesis 1 wasn't a myth, nor was it a textbook. It was a poem that declared our God is better than the gods of Egypt. That's the big idea. Okay, with that in mind, now let's get into the details. Let's look for a moment at the first two verses. A lot happens there. Verse number 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's a profound statement. Right there at the beginning, God is creating the universe out of nothing. In Hebrew, when it says heavens and earth, you can kind of put a bracket around it. That's one phrase. That's how the Hebrews referred to all that is, not God. So all of creation, all the universe, that's their term for it. So this is God creating the universe. And that word created in Hebrew, it's bara. It means to to make something or create something fresh and new. And interestingly, in the Old Testament, it is only ever God who baras. So humans can make stuff. Satan can twist stuff. But only God can create stuff. 
Only God can bara, create something out of nothing, create something that is entirely new. God creates this universe out of nothing. We're told in Hebrews 11, by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. In other words, God did not start with raw materials and craft this universe. That's what humans do. We start with raw materials and we craft things. That's great, but God is in us. God didn't need raw materials. He simply creates out of nothing. So this universe is not eternal. It had some beginning when God created it out of nothing. So God has created the universe, but there are a couple problems with it. Or or more specifically, there's a couple problems with this place, with the earth. And you see that in verse 2. It says, The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. So there are two glaring deficiencies with this place we live, with the earth. It is formless and it is void. Formless, it pictures a lump of clay before you turn it into something. So lump of clay, you're going to turn it into a bowl or a plate, something you can do something with. When it's a lump of clay, it's useless. It can't hold water. You can't eat off it. It can't do what it's meant to do. That was the earth. It was, it was useless. It had no form, no order. As a result, the second problem was void. There were no living things here. Nothing could live here. It was not yet habitable. And so when we look at what's going on in Genesis chapter 1, most of Genesis chapter 1, actually from verse 3 all the way to the end of the chapter, it is about God fixing those two problems. That's Genesis 1. God is making this place habitable for us. Okay, so that's where it's going. God is going to bring form and God is going to fill it. Okay, so that's the point of chapter 1 of Genesis. And so at the end of verse 2, God's spirit comes and hovers over the waters and God begins to work. And so I I warned you this is going to be more like a science class than a sermon. So here is my chart for you. Don't usually use charts in my sermons if you've never heard me preach before, but you're going to get one today. So you may get one next week too. I'm not sure yet. We'll see. So I use them sometimes. So On days one, two, and three, God is going to fix the formless problem. God is going to bring form and order to the world. On days four, five, and six, God is going to fix the void problem. He's going to fill his creation with inhabitants. So let's look at how this plays out. On day number one, God creates the light. So that's the new thing that he creates. He barras out of nothing. He creates light, and then he differentiates it from darkness. So now light and darkness have their own realms, day and night. So he's begun to order creation. And I just want you to notice a few things before we move on from day number one. First of all, all God has to do is speak. That's really significant. And all the other creation epics of the other ancient cultures, creation is typically a byproduct of divine warfare or sex. That's how the world came to be. The Bible says, no, there's one great God and all he does is speak. He doesn't need to sweat. He doesn't need to pull out his tools. He doesn't need big muscles. He just speaks. And all of the universe, all matter and all energy instantly obey. Okay, so he speaks and creation comes about. That's the first thing to know. Second thing to notice, a lot of the time in Genesis 1, rather than creating something new, God is ordering something. That's what's going on a lot. God is separating things into their own realms. He's bringing order and form. It tells you right from the beginning, we have a God who loves order. He loves design. 
Third thing to notice here, after making something, God names it. Okay, so he names day and he names night and land and sea. That's actually a kingly act. If you think about what it means to name something, you are authoritatively declaring what that thing is. And so every time God names something, he is saying, I am the king over this entire universe. This is all mine. That gets really interesting in the next chapter when God is going to invite someone else to give out some names. We'll look at that next week. Fourth thing to notice, each time God makes something, he declares it to be good. Now, what, what is good here? There's, there's not really sin yet in the world, so this isn't so much about moral goodness. This is about the goodness of the design. It means there's nothing broken. There's nothing evil. There's, there's nothing that's not working correctly. Each time God makes something, he says that's good. He means that's exactly what I meant it to be. That's perfect. That's exactly according to my design. So all of creation in Genesis 1 is good. It's, it's even very good at the end of the chapter. We have no sin, no evil, no brokenness in creation. Don't get that till chapter 3, which we'll see that one also next week. So day number one is done. Day number two, God steps in to an earth that is covered by unending water. Don't know what's going on here, but there's water everywhere and God begins to bring order. And so he divides the waters below from the waters above with this thing that in in my Bible is translated heaven. It actually would be more accurate to call it sky. That's what's going on here. So picture an unending ocean. That's waters below. Sky, that's the air we're breathing. And then the waters above, that's the clouds up there. Okay, so that's what's happened. Now God has brought order to the atmosphere. Day number three, God begins to focus on this water down here, the waters below the oceans, and he begins to pull them back. He begins to separate and raise land out of it. So now there's these, this new order. There's these new realms. There's the realm of the oceans. He names that the seas and the, land, and the, the realm of the land. He calls that land or dry ground. And, and then God immediately begins to bring beauty on that dry land. He brings about plant life. He causes plants to begin to grow, and we don't know how. We don't know when it says that he created kinds of life. That's not a scientific word for species. We don't know if God created every type of plant in the world or one type and let it evolve. Don't know what's going on there. We just know God begins to bring about plant life on the land. So by the end, I should be filling this in, by the end of day three, we now have all of this form, all of this order in the world. God has created each of these unique domains. Okay, so now the earth is habitable, but it's still pretty much empty. Okay, so God is going to begin to fill it. That's days four through six. He's going to fill all of these new domains that he has made. That filling begins on day four. God creates the sun to fill and rule over the day. God creates the moon and the stars to fill and rule over the night. Okay, so he's created these great lights in the, in, the, in the stars above. Day five, God creates fish to fill the ocean and birds to fill the sky. Again, we don't know how broad that word kinds is meant to do, like every species of bird or one and they evolve. We don't know, but he creates the fish and the birds to fill. Then you have day six, and day six is not like the others. Day six stands out as uniquely important. All the other days are like, a third day, a fourth day in the text, but this is the sixth day, specific. It's the sixth day, and every other day is good, but this day is very good. This is the pinnacle. This is what it was all building up to. The day begins much like the one before it, God creates animal life, okay, to fill this, this new realm of the land. He creates all these kinds of animals. That's good, but then God does something very good. 
He creates us. He creates humanity. And again, the word bara is used. He doesn't start with the raw material of animal life. He creates something entirely new, human beings. We are new because we alone are made in the image of God. You cannot overstate the importance of being made in the image of God to your identity and value in life. We'll talk about that in great detail also next week. Incredibly important. You are made in the image of God. And so made in the image of God, now God's creation is complete. And so God can rest. He he has brought form and order to it. He has filled it with all of this life, including the pinnacle of life, which is us, to rule over all of those realms, rule over the world that he's made. And so creation is very good. It is complete. And then the creator rests. That's the story. Those are the details of the story. So now we've got to get to the question that everyone always wants to know. So having read and studied Genesis 1, how do we reconcile that with modern science? Again, that's not the point of Genesis 1. No one in the ancient audience was asking, how do I fit this in with science? That wasn't what they were asking. But we do ask it. It's a good question. How do I understand Genesis 1 in light of all that I'm learning in my science textbooks and my classes? How do I fit that together? So how do I reconcile Genesis 1 with science, especially the science of evolution? That's the word that people really get tripped up on. So let's talk about that word for a moment. Evolution. In a lot of Christian circles, the word evolution is a bad word. It's a false thing. It's evil. Um, That's not correct. That's not true. Evolution is really simple. Evolution is just genetic change over successive generations. And we all believe that's happening. We know that's happening. That's actually one of, if not the greatest design feature God put into the creation of life. I love evolution. No human engineer can create a system that is always improving itself and adapting to changing environments. What an incredible creator. So he creates life in a way that it can evolve and adapt and continually improve itself. We all believe that evolution is happening and that it's a beautiful thing God made. The question is, how broadly has evolution been at work? In the explanation of all living things, how much is attributable to evolution? Well, there's generally three answers to that. The first is, well, evolution has done all the work. This is what you might call naturalistic evolution. It's unguided evolution. This is held by people outside the church, not all, but many. They believe there is no God. There is simply evolution at work. Unguided evolution working through natural processes over very long periods of time explains all the life that there is. Well, we we have to rule this one out because it does not believe in a creator who guides the development of life. So that that one's off the table for Bible-believing people. Um, But then there's a second view, and this one is on the table. Many godly Christians hold to this view. They believe that evolution has done most of the work. This is what we would call theistic evolution. This is the belief that God, as the great creator, began the spark of life, and then he he developed and guided that life through the process of evolution into all life you see today, with one exception, and that's us. Somehow he specially created human beings. So that's, that's a good view. Their evolution is a tool God is using to bring about most of the life that you see. There's a third view held by a lot of Christians. This is what we might call confined evolution. It holds that evolution has done only a little of the work. So in this view, God created every kind of living creature. Now, how wide or broad is a kind? 
For example, there are 114 species of cat on the earth today by last count. So did God create one cat and let it evolve into 114 species? Or did he create 114 cats, one for each species? Don't know. Okay, so that's the view of confined evolution. The key thing that I want you to notice is that only the first view is at odds with the Bible. All of us believe in evolution. It's not a bad word. The question is how broadly has it been at work and what God has done to bring about life. So with that clarification in mind, now we're going to jump into the big stuff. The six different views that people hold who do believe the Bible is God's word. So all six views I'm giving you are held by evangelical godly Christians who are committed to the inerrancy of scripture. They believe this chapter of scripture is true. There's six different ways to interpret it and try to fit it in with what we learn from science. Okay, so I'll say this again at the end. All six of these are legit. You're good if you hold any of these six. They're all okay, right? So let's jump in. First one comes to most people's mind when they think about this, what we call young earth creationism. Young earth creationism teaches that Genesis 1 is describing six consecutive, literal, 24-hour days. So creation happened in 144 hours. It pretty much all happened by instantaneous divine miracle. There really wasn't time for something like evolution or natural processes to be at work. So what about all the parts of the universe that look old? Well, they were created to look old. They're not actually old. Creation is, in fact, very young. Young earth creationists believe that the genealogies in the Bible are exhaustive or comprehensive. There are no skipped genealogies, so you can do the math and add it up. In this view, the earth is 8,000 years old, give or take. Okay, so 8,000-year-old earth. There are certainly some advantages to this view. At first blush, it seems like the simplest way to read the passage. I mean, it's just right there. It's real simple, real easy to explain. This view is correct in that when the Hebrew says um, day and evening and morning, it pretty much always is referring to a 24-hour period of time. So that's good. This is also the most common view in Christian history. It's not the only view by any means, but it is the most common. The view, though, has some disadvantages as well. The first is that if we were to keep reading, chapter 2 tells the story of creation again, and it's different. Different order, different mechanism, different sequence. So which one is correct? How are you going to fit the two together? Something's got to be not literal here. Second problem, days 1 and 4. I don't know if you noticed that. There's a little bit of an issue here. Day 1, you get light, but you don't get the source of light till day 4. What does light mean with no sun, no moon, no stars, certainly don't have electric light bulbs? What is light in that case? There's no source for these photons we call light. So very hard to put that one together. In addition, this view has the problem that days one through three are called days, and there's morning and evening. And how do you know morning and evening? How do you know days? From the sun and the moon. That's how it works. So that's an issue. In general, this view has a really hard time lining up with modern science and our best understandings of modern science. And a lot of people think about, well, the fossil record and things like that. Actually, the biggest problem is stars for this view. So when you go out tonight and you see a star, how old is the light that's hitting your eye? I just use the speed of light. You can calculate it out. Millions, billions of years old. Well, if that star was created 8,000 years ago, how is light hitting your eyes now? God would have had to seriously twist the laws of physics to make that happen. And that leads to the really fourth and and biggest problem with this view. It tells us that creation is saying something to us that's not true. So if you study creation based on the laws God designed into creation, it says, I am old, like many billions of years old. What do you do if that's actually a lie? How do you put that together? So 
My whole point in sharing that is not to rag on young earth creation. It's just to say all these views have pros and cons. All of them have strengths and weaknesses. Okay, second view. This is the day-age view. So uh, proponents of this view rightly notice that the word day, yom, in Hebrew, sometimes it can be translated age, like a long period of time. You see that actually in the next chapter. Look at chapter 2, verse 4 for a second. It says, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Okay, so in chapter 1, how many days? Six. Chapter 2, how many days? One. So how do you put that together? Well, because day doesn't always mean 24 hours. It can mean a long age. So in this view, creation lasted millions, if not billions of years. Each day was a really long age of the earth. This is often called progressive creationism. So God was creating in miraculous ways, but not over 114 hours, but over millions or billions of of years. So in this view, it's important to understand the language of Genesis 1 is what we call experiential, not scientific. So this view would say that what Moses is trying to do is describe what you're seeing if you were a human being standing on earth as these events unfold. Example, day four can't be God making the sun because science tells us world, earth can't exist without the sun. That has to come first. So the sun was already there, but the sky was clouded with with volcanic ash or with debris, something like that. And so day four is God removing all of the debris in the atmosphere so you as an observer could see the sun and moon and stars for the first time. It's experiential language is the idea here. There's some strong advantages here. Day, indeed, can refer to long periods of time in the Bible. You can much better fit with the consensus of science if you take the day age view. A couple disadvantages, too. In Hebrew, when you have the word day combined with evening and morning, every other place it means 24 hours. So this would be exceptional. Um, there's still scientific problems. Like even if it's long ages, um, how do you have plant life before there's any sunlight on the earth? How does that fit? It's hard to put it all together. So day, age, strengths and weaknesses. All right, next one. This is fun. See if you can track with me on this. Days of proclamation of revelation. This view holds that these six days in Genesis 1 are actually literal sequential 24-hour days. So this is 114 hours here in Genesis chapter 1. But this isn't when God actually created. Okay, so in this view, Genesis 1 is just about God telling someone what he's either about to do or what he already did. So if it's days of proclamation, it's before. This chapter in the days of proclamation view is God telling the angels what he's about to do. And for whatever reason, God took six days to tell them. Even though we read it in a few minutes, he he kind of drew it out, make it exciting. So six days to tell the angels, then he went out and did it, and it took however long he wanted it to take. In the days of revelation view, it's after, so God created the world, and then he revealed to Moses for six days on Mount Sinai. So we're talking 114 hours, about 3,500 years ago. God is narrating to Moses how creation worked. Easiest way to understand this third view is to think about a football coach drawing out a play on a dry erase board. Lots of X's and O's and arrows. Is the play occurring while he draws it out? No. He's either drawing it out before the play or he's drawing it out after the play. That's Genesis 1. It's just God, dry erase board, drawn out for you. What he's either about to do or already did. This view has some advantages. You get to stick with day being literal 24 hours. And you can easily fit with modern science because however long it took is how long it took. It does have some disadvantages, primarily the fact that in Genesis 1, the language sure seems like every time God says something, it immediately happens. 
It seems like the, the speech and the action are immediately together. All right, fourth view. This is called the gap theory. Uh, it was popular some time ago, less popular these days. This is a hypothetical view. It, it hypothesizes that there is a long gap of time between verses 1 and 2. So in this view, God created in verse 1, and then a long period of time passes. And during that long period of time, his original creation is ruined, probably by the fall of Satan that's talked about in later chapters of Scripture. That original creation is ruined, and then in verse 2, God steps in to fix or restore what was broken. Okay, there are some advantages to this view. In this view, those words formless and void, they're not just like problems with the earth. They're actually evil terms. They're sinful terms. It's, it's broken by the sin that Satan brought to it. Formless and void often in scripture are bad things, so that could make some sense. It's really easy to fit this view with modern science because basically in this view, all modern science happened between verses one and two, and you got no data on that. So like fossils and galaxies and evolution, that all happened in the space between verses 1 and 2. There are some disadvantages. First of all, it's not obvious. There's nothing in here to indicate it. The biggest issue, though, is it's a complete argument from silence. There's nothing in the Hebrew grammar to suggest that time passes between verses 1 and 2. So it's just a guess. Fifth view. I love this one. This one's fascinating. It's called the preparation of the land view. This view is is a a little more recent. Um, It's based on the definition of a word we read a lot. In Hebrew, it's the word eretz. And in your Bible, it's probably translated earth. But here's the deal. Hebrews, they did not have different words for earth and land. They had one word, eretz. Why did they not have a word for earth? They didn't know anything about planets. They didn't understand the planet earth, like the globe earth. That was not a concept to them. What did they perceive of the place they lived? It's a whole lot of land. I can go that way a long ways. I can go that way a long ways. That was earth to them. That's arets to them. There's not separate words for the land I live on versus the globe I inhabit. And so what this view says is, okay, if there's only one word and, and you can use it interchangeably, then how is that word usually used in the Old Testament? Everywhere else, almost everywhere else, it's used of land. And not just any land, it's almost always used of God's land. What we call colloquially the promised land the land where God put the Garden of Eden, the land that he offered as a gift to Abraham, the land where the Israelites lived, the promised land of Canaan, that's God's land. And so what this view says is Genesis 1 isn't about the globe of earth because the Hebrews didn't have a concept of that. It's about the promised land and how God prepared it for humans to live. So in this view, well, how did the earth and all life come about on the earth? Genesis 1 is silent about that. What happened is that at some point in time, God begins to prepare this special land where he's going to plant the Garden of Eden. And, and for whatever reason, at the beginning, that land is covered with water and mist and maybe volcanic ash. You don't have light on that land. It's chaotic. And so God begins to prepare and perfect that land, his land, that he'll give to his people. And that's what the days are. It's God fixing whatever the problem was on the promised land. Really interesting view strong um, advantages for it. That's indeed how the word arets is used almost everywhere in the Old Testament. That view lines up with a big theme in Genesis much better, which is that God particularly cares about his promised land. That's the focus of his, of his interest. It also makes Genesis 1 really easy to reconcile with science because who knows what was going on in the rest of the globe? 
Life could have been evolving for millions of years. What matters is that God prepared this land and then created these special creatures, humans, that weren't found anywhere else to inhabit his own land. There are some disadvantages. I can't prove it. (laughs) I can't go back in time and show you for sure that that's it. There's also some passages, particularly in Exodus, that seem to connect creation with all of earth and sun and moon stars, everything. So hard to put all that together. But that's a really fascinating view. Sixth view, this is the most complicated, so let's see if I can figure out how to explain this one. This one's tough. It's called literary framework view. This view attempts to do justice to the fact that Genesis 1 really is poetry. For sure, we know. It's poetry. So if it's poetry, well, then it's probably not meant to reveal to us scientific data or sequences of events, because that's not what poetry does. It's meant to reveal to us theological truths in a song. Okay, so it tries to do justice to that. It also tries to do justice with the fact that this is apologetics, that it's Moses taking that Egyptian creation poetry and rewriting it for our God, that he's the, to prove that he's the, the better God. So in this view, the creation days, these six days, they are not actual days. They are simply a literary device that Moses crafted to make a poem that declares the greatness and goodness of our God. It's just a poem. That's all this is. It's not meant to tell you sequence of days. It's just poetry. Now, there are some strong advantages to this. First of all, this view more than any of the others does justice to the fact that this really is a song. We know that. This this is poetry, as the Hebrews would have written it. It also explains the surprising repetition, especially between days one and four. In this view, it's not about sequence of events. You're not trying to figure out how do we have light before we have the sun, what's going on there in the atmosphere. It's not about that. It's poetry. So it's just repetition. Day one and day four are talking about the same thing. It's God at work in the realm of light and darkness. Um, This one is very easy to reconcile with science because basically Genesis 1 isn't saying anything about the mechanics of creation or the timing of creation in this view. There are some disadvantages. It's really hard to explain. I don't know whether you got it or not. It's complex. Took me a number of times reading through it to get it. I can't prove it. I can't go back 3,500 years and ask an Israelite, is this just a poem? Is that what we're dealing with here? Can't prove it. Um, So it's, it's a hard one to prove for sure. But now the question that everybody wants to know, which of those is right? Well, I have no idea. I've come to the conclusion that I won't know until God himself tells me. Because all six are solid views. You can hold any of those. I really like numbers five and six, but maybe that's just because I like the new thing. I don't know. They're all great. Here's the big thing, the, the most important thing. Whichever of those views you hold to, it's okay. You're being faithful to scripture. There are godly evangelical scholars far smarter than me behind each and every one of those views. So I don't think we're going to know this side of heaven, which of them is correct. And you know what? That's okay. Because remember, Genesis 1 is not about how or when the world was made. That was not why Moses was writing this chapter. That's not the questions the Israelites were asking. Genesis 1 is about the far more important question, who and why the world was made. If you pause for a second and think about how much does the how and when affect your daily life? Zero? What what does it matter to me which of those six views is true? How does that affect how I go through this life? But the who and the why, that matters every second of every day. Who made this universe and why he made it? That's everything to me. That's incredibly important in my daily life. 
That's why Moses wrote this chapter. I think it's so important for us to step back for a moment and remind ourselves that Genesis was not written to a convention of scientists. It was written to a people who were on a journey of faith. They wanted to know, can I trust this God that Moses preaches? Does he have my back? Will he watch over me? That's the point of Genesis 1. And so Moses writes this chapter first to answer the question, who? Who made this universe that you see? What do the Egyptians say? Well, a whole lot of awful gods who are at war with one another, who are in sex with one another, and you are just the accidental byproduct of it. What a horrible understanding of reality. Moses says none of that's true. No, there is one sovereign almighty God who speaks and all of creation comes about. That's the God who made the world. I love how J.I. Parker puts this. He's talking about chapters 1 and 2. The message of these two chapters, Genesis 1 and 2, is this. You've seen the sea, the sky, the sun, the moon, and stars. You've watched the birds and the fish. You have marveled at the wonderful complexity of human beings. Fantastic, isn't it? Well, now meet the one who's behind it all. Genesis 1 is designed to introduce you to the creator, not to befuddle you with questions of creation mechanisms. It's all about God. Okay, so it introduces us to who is responsible for this universe that we are born into. And second, it's designed to tell us why. Why did he make it? Golly, that question is so incredibly important. That's like the biggest question of all. Why? Why am I here? Why is this here? Why are we here? The answer of Genesis 1 is it's here for us. That's the whole point. It's here for us. Did you notice that the days of creation, they're not equal? There's one that rises above all the rest. The last one, when you were made, everything else is good. You are very good. So why did God make this world? He made it to be a home for us. That's days one through six. God is bringing form where there was no form, and he's bringing life where there was no life. Why is he doing that? So that you will have a place to live. That's the problem that Genesis 1 solves. There is an earth and it is formless and void. You can't live there. And what does God care about? You. And so Genesis 1 is God bringing order and filling this new earth, this perfect earth, so that you will have a place to live. Creation is for you. That is the point of Genesis 1. We so often get caught up in the questions of science and timing and mechanism, and we forget that the point of Genesis 1 is about how much God loves us. That's the whole message of Genesis 1, that you have a creator who loves you more than you can imagine. So you walk out and you see these beautiful things in the world. What are you supposed to think when you see these beautiful things? You're supposed to think, well, that's for me, because it is. That's mine. My father made that to delight me. That is what creation is about. It is about God creating a beautiful, wonderful, perfect home for you. Because he loves you. Genesis 1 is not about creation mechanisms. It is about the incredible love of God for humanity. That's the point of this whole thing. And so... Let me ask you, as you walk away from Genesis 1, have you met this God? That's why chapter 1 was written, to introduce you to this powerful God who loves you more than you can imagine. Have you met him? Have you come to this God and chosen to believe he exists and he loves you and he cares about you? 
Have you chosen to believe that when humanity fell into sin and evil, that this great creator God didn't give up on us? That instead, he took the next step, he took on human flesh, he became one of us, he lived a perfect life for us, he died for us, he rose from us, so that he could offer us, on top of the gift of life, eternal life as a free gift, forgiveness as a free gift. Have you come to that God and said, yes, I believe you are amazing, you love me, I say yes to your gift. For those of us who have said yes to that gift of eternal life in God, The challenge for us is we're going to have to resist the urge to divide over different views of this chapter. What we have to to recognize is that whether you're a young earth creationist or a theistic evolutionist or a literary framework guru, we're all on the same page. Why? Because we're all believing in the creator God who loves us. And that's what matters. The particulars of each view, that's not what matters. And so our challenge is to unify together, to not let things like evolution or creation, not let them divide us. Instead, let's unify with one another to do what really matters, which is introduce the people of this world to this great God of love. That should be the the takeaway from Genesis 1. Is not, gosh, I want to go deep into this. If you want to go into science, that's fine, that's great. It's not the big idea. The big idea, the big takeaway is I can't wait to tell somebody about a creator God who would do this. I can't wait to tell somebody who thinks that they are just an accident or a product of random chance at work for billions of years that no, there is a creator who is almighty and who loves them so much that everything was made for them. That's the takeaway of Genesis 1. The unmatched love of God for the human race. And so I want us to end by praying that God will help us to be messengers of his incredible power and love to a lost and dying world. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us as we walk away from Genesis 1 to be overwhelmed, at least for a moment, at the depth of your love. Heavenly Father, I pray that in all of the murky details and confusing language of this chapter that we would not miss the big idea. That we would see clearly that it is about you, your power, your sovereignty, and your love. That in infinite power you spoke the universe into existence and you brought form and order to it and you filled it with life so that we would have a home. I pray that in the, in the story of Genesis 1, we would see your incredible love for us. And I pray that, that we would be so amazed at your love for us that we would be motivated to go out and tell other people about it. I pray, God, for each of us, put someone in our path today who does not yet understand Genesis 1 and what it says about you. Someone who, who feels like they have no value, they have no worth, they're unloved, they're just an accident, just a product of chance. I pray that you would help us to bring to them this incredible message of love and value. I pray that in Genesis 1, they would meet you. And in meeting you, they would be saved. And they would know that they matter that they are loved, that they've been loved since the beginning of time, that they would see how valuable they are. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would help us to walk in your love and in your power this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'll see you guys next week as we go through cover to cover. Uh, Let's see, you can get all the notes on Facebook today. There's the details. Go into the foyer and sign up for a way to get connected here at Grace.